But I think when we're conscious of wanting to live slower or live peacefully, we can consciously create a space that basically holds that space for us. Welcome to the Good Dirt Podcast, where we dig into the nitty-gritty of sustainable living through food, fashion, and lifestyle. We're your hosts, Emma and Mary Kingsley, the mother-daughter-founder team of Lady Farmer, a slow-living apparel and lifestyle brand. Before we get started, let's just check in and see what's up. Mom, how have you practiced slow living this week? My slow living practice lately has been to take a few minutes every morning to read something fun Maybe like a book I got for Christmas or to take a book off the shelf that I've been meaning to read forever and just take my cup of coffee and sit down and just read. So I've been doing that and it's really fun. Yes. So mine is actually a specific event this week. Um, I was in New York City, which is not very slow, (laughs) for a class that I'm taking and I basically take the bus up. The night before the class, I stay with a friend. The class is the next morning, and then I take the bus back home. Um, It's pretty easy. But my class ended early, and I had two whole hours until my bus. And normally, I would run to the bus stop as quickly as I could, see if I could catch an earlier bus, pay the five bucks or whatever it costs to get an earlier bus time, um, and just get home that much faster. But I, for whatever reason, and I couldn't really justify it in my head, you know, because I felt like, oh, you're just wasting time if I'm just, you know, sitting in a cafe in New York. Um, But I just really wanted to. And, you know, I had planned to come home at that certain time, and there wasn't, yeah, it would have been cool to get home early. Usually I love jumping at stuff like that, you know, taking advantage of found time or whatever. Um... But I think instead of taking advantage of that time, I thought I'll just have that time and just let it be. And it was really kind of hard, like sitting in that cafe like for an hour. It it was so interesting to watch myself. Um, It was kind of an exercise, like a little game I played with myself, like how uncomfortable is this going to be? It seems so silly and, and like it's not even anything, but it really was like I really forced myself to wait on the bus. <laughs> well, it's funny you should bring that up because um, last year when we did the slow living challenge, the seven day slow living challenge, one of the exercises was um, spend five minutes today just sitting. And people are really surprised how hard that is to sit for five minutes. And here's the big thing. It actually really slows time down. We talk about, oh, we don't have any time. Like, time goes so fast. Just try sitting doing nothing. Yeah. And time will slow down. Yeah. <laughs> it's really amazing. It's, it's uh, yeah. Yeah, and it was kind of fun because the only thing I could think to do to, like, you know, it wasn't enough time to, like, really sink into work or, like, even answer emails and stuff because I, I just, you know, I like to be, I like to have big chunks of time for that kind of thing. Um, so the only thing I could think to do was write a letter to an old friend. And I 
can't tell you the last time that I wrote a letter to someone. So it, it really was, it ended up being so fun. I kind of got that moment. Um, which is a great segue, Mom, from the Slow Living Challenge that you just said into um, talking about the Slow Living Challenge for this year, which is starting yes. in just a few weeks. Mid-February, we'll kick it off. Yes. Can you tell them about what it is? Yeah, so last year we did the seven days. Um, this year we're doing five weeks. And um, instead of getting a prompt every day, you will get a prompt on Sunday, an email with a prompt with a theme for the week, and you'll have related exercises. And um, There's a Facebook group. Yeah. If you sign up for the challenge and you're getting emails, you'll have access to the Facebook group. And it's a really fun kind of accountability is an annoying word, but basically, you know, checking in with each other. It's a community thing. Yeah. Sharing kind of our experiences with slowing down. If you haven't seen it yet, we have a new line in our shop uh, from Line and Toe. It's a beautiful line out of designed in Roanoke, Virginia, made in Guatemala. The fabrics are all beautiful. Um, part of the collection is made out of recycled denim, which is super cool. Go check those out if you haven't seen them already. Yes, I, we think you're going to really love these pieces. We're so excited to have them. Yeah. So I think that's it for announcements for this week. We're going to go ahead and jump into this episode. It's a really special one. Today's episode is about creating sustainable spaces that support our well-being in a variety of ways. At Lady Farmer, we talk a lot about how as a culture and as humans, we've lost so much of our connection to the sources of our daily needs, our food, our clothing, and our shelters and our tools for everyday living. So in terms of our living spaces, our ancestors would create for themselves what was possible according to their own circumstances, from choosing the location and materials to designing exactly what worked for them. And until quite recently in human history, people planned and built their own shelter and its contents from what was around them. Fast forward to the present, where the creation of our living spaces is relegated to an industry that few of us know anything about, and we know even less about where the materials of our everyday living come from. Yet, as members of a consumer society, we find ourselves filling these spaces with countless objects that we're led to believe we need. Today, we're going to take a step back to the fundamentals of what we really want in our surroundings and what comprises a space that goes beyond perpetuating our voracious appetite for more things. What we're talking about today is how to cultivate surroundings that deeply nurture our health and well-being. Here with us to explore this topic is Joy Hoffman. We know Joy as a creator and a curator of beautiful things. She's a designer, an artist, and a visionary focused on advancing the human spirit through meaningful and creative design solutions. She's super cool. She's also the mother of four creative and amazing children that I had the privilege of getting to know the year that I spent as an intern with Joy. I lived with their family, and I worked with her, and I babysat her kids, and I just I just love everything about Joy and her family, and I learned so much from her. In fact, a lot of what I learned from her led straight into my work with Lady Farmer, and I have her to thank for a lot of what Lady Farmer looks like today. Joy is recognized for assisting clients to shape a vision, realize possibilities, curate resources, and gracefully guide individuals, leaders, and organizations to beautiful and consequential outcomes. 
widely acknowledged and respected for aesthetic sensibilities, judgment, and leadership. The depth and breadth of her knowledge and understanding draws from a lifetime of diverse experiences and engagements. Her skills and creative passion have inspired and informed everything from helping design a new town to humanitarian aid work in South America and the Middle East. She's designed and managed Forbes List destination weddings and developed one of the most respected and influential wedding websites in the world. Joy's work has been published in Vogue, Elle Decor, and countless wedding publications. She's an accomplished photographer, painter, stylist, and has designed interiors for the residential and hospitality sectors. She's launched businesses in the education space, founded a micro school, written courses, and taught workshops internationally. Joy completed her undergrad studies in art and anthropology, studied art in Italy, lived with a tribe in the Amazon, and has taken coursework at Harvard and along the way, of course, raising her four children. Joy's motto is create the things you wish existed, which is an intriguing way to frame our discussion about creating spaces that make us feel peaceful and whole. During this episode, we will discuss the importance of play, the concept of biophilia, the necessity for including nature in our surroundings, and the role of light, color, and objects in how we feel. We will also hear about Joy's dream of creating not only healing spaces, but entire towns, and her idea about what utopia might look like. That's not utopia, but e-utopia. What's that? To find out, listen to this episode coming up now. If someone were to come up to you at a party and say, hi, what do you do? What is what is your answer? I'm curious. Oh, gosh, that's such a funny question because um, I don't really have a great answer. And I think I adapt my answer depending on the audience and my mood. Because uh, I just, I don't know. I mean, what I really want to answer to that question is usually is like, I'm just me. I'm... <laughs> What do I do? I uh, try to be happy. I try to listen. Um, I try to use my gifts to help the world, like whatever. Uh, I don't feel very siloed or uh, like I have a good label for myself. I'm, I'm just me. Yeah. I mean, today I'm kind of designer, painter, creative director. Okay. I just want to like work with interesting people that are creative and smart and want to play. I like the word play and you know, we're so in our culture, we're so accustomed to people wanting to know what we, what, where we work or what do we do for your work? And, you know, we can reframe that and say like, um, how do you play? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. What do you do for fun? (laughs) That's a great conversation starter or stopper maybe I don't know because uh, maybe people don't they don't think of play as you know they don't value it right um so but here you are on this journey of incorporating play into what you do every day yeah and really even my favorite people I've ever worked with all uh, think about and talk about work as play and oh. and that's come up in early early conversations with them and i it's one of those things that helps me know really quickly oh this is my kind of person let's go 
there was a lot of that in my job at Pinewood, Pinewood Forest. We were making a town and there were a lot of times that felt like playing in a really great way. I think a lot of it comes from like a certain degree of honesty between people that like, we don't really know what we're doing here, right? Like there's no plan you're supposed to follow. There's just like talented people that have their ideas and let's have a dialogue and figure out where this needs to go and have fun doing it. Well, I know from what I've um, seen of your work and what you've been sharing on social media that the idea of spaces and how to create spaces that nurture us as humans and our soul is really central to your work yeah. and um, or your play. <laughs> and at the same time, at Lady Farmer, we're, um, we talk a lot about spaces and what are some of your ideas about recreating what we what we would consider conventional living spaces uh, in our in our society and culture to help to help us heal to help us all heal like you know physically emotionally and and all these things that when in, in our, our world where there's a lot of a lot of pain and a lot of degeneration oh man i could talk for three hours about that um, yay just go, go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so some of the first things that come to mind with the, I mean, some of the language you were using registers in my mind as healing spaces. Are you guys familiar with biophilia? No. Okay. Tell us. It's this fantastic whole field of study that's emerged that means, you know, uh, bio life and philia is love of, and it's the love of life, but more specifically, like the love of nature. And it is mostly scientists starting to dig into the science side of why we love nature and how it helps us and how it heals us and how it makes us feel better. And it's fascinating. And a lot of it is like really obvious things that we all um, kind of intuitively know that like, you feel better when you take a walk in the woods, but it starts to document and and dig into why and what's happening physiologically and psychologically. And if you want to dig in to any of this further, just Google biophilia and you'll be sent down a great rabbit hole. It's beautiful. Like I kind of think about it in the same or similar to how um, like the paleo diet, right? We're kind of learning, oh, our bodies work better when we give it real food and um, whole food. And it's a lot of the biophilia stuff to me is kind of a mental parallel to that, that like, oh, actually our brains also work better when we're surrounded by nature. Your serotonin levels um, are replenished when you see leaves moving in a tree. Humans have been on the earth for two point five million years and homo sapiens emerged 200,000 years ago. And um, if you put that onto a 24 hour clock, it's only been in the last second that, uh, that we've evolved all these things that have separated us from nature. So it's really just a flash in our human evolution. Yeah. That we've tried to live 
this life separated from those things. So we're talking about our brains and our biology responding to nature. That's because we're really like, we, you know, we've so recently have we even been separated from it. So we're struggling as, as organisms. I mean, we're the same organism we were 200,000 years ago, the same, the same species. And look at the adaptations we have to make in this, this very recent uh, recent history and we know why you know why are we stressed why are we anxious why are we unhappy why do we have migraines and it's just really no mystery when you kind of look at it in that context right. so there's so much yeah. about our spaces that are are big pieces of that like some of them are um you can help mitigate some of those gaps by building with natural materials right and reinserting plants and daylight and even um, air circulation and all these things like wind and like trying to recreate or um, it's not even about recreating to me. It's, it's really about aligning our built environment with the natural environment um, because that's our natural habitat. Right. And it's like, yeah, uh, I don't know. This picture just came to me, but it's kind of like, um, we've put ourselves in cages at a zoo and then are learning like, Oh, actually the penguins do better when they're in something that has like water and ice and the yeah. <laughs> giraffes are better when they have yeah. tall trees, you know? Um, so I feel like we're learning that, Oh, we need, we need nature around us and we um, need to remove that separation. Another really important piece though, that we're learning that I think has a massive impact on the um, mental health of our society that I think is hugely, hugely um, problematic in our built environments. And this is har much harder to address on an individual scale than, you know, bring some natural materials and plants into your house. But we've also been separated from each other in the way that we build now. And there's yeah. all kinds of really solid research coming out now that says that loneliness is our biggest health epidemic and that loneliness is more detrimental to our health than smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Wow. Yeah. It seems to me, um, in all the research I've done on wellness, one of the easiest ways to think about it is having a healthy, positive connection with yourself with others and with nature. Mm -hmm. And if you can do those things, you're, you're doing pretty good. The other really maybe most basic way I've come to think about it is in terms of whether your body is in basically your stress response, fight, flight, or freeze, or if it's in its rest and digest mm -hmm. state, which is basically one of the only binaries we know of that's like a actual binary that um, you're either in stress or in rest. And when you're in stress, you can't be in rest and you can't uh, when you're in rest is like when your body repairs itself. It's when you can digest your food. It's when you can, your body can heal itself. So if you're always in stress mode, you can never rest or heal. And I think we tend to be, we tend to be in stress 
And when you're in stress a lot, it's kind of a compounding problem because we become addicted to the stress. Um, yeah. That becomes, it's, it's an actual peptide addiction that your, your body needs that um, cortisol level or craves that high cortisol level. Um, yeah. so that can become a real problem, I think, for a lot of us when, if you're not aware of it, and when, when we try to slow down, like this is a, a really big, helpful piece of science to me with the idea of slow living is that like we have to know that when we slow down, if you've been going, 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 your body wants to maintain that, that speed. And when you slow down and you'll, uh, if you're not aware of it, like you're just going to keep having all these urges to like do something stressful. The way I have, I have come to think of that phenomenon and even explain it to others is you create with your circumstances, you create a kind of chemical soup in your body and you become addicted to that particular chemical soup and your mind will find ways to keep Mm -hmm. it sustained. You, and even you will like, I don't like the way that person responded to my text, you know, just to to even feed yourself something to get that um, peptide going to sustain that level of stress that you're addicted to in your body. And that's why it's, it's like you were saying, it's really hard for us. We have to, you have to be super conscious yeah. of that. And, and like, oh, this thing's bugging me. I feel mad. I feel angry. You really have to be able to step back and observe it and say, this is a feeling. And um, how can I change this feeling? And then when you change the feeling, the chemicals in your body will change. Yeah. And then, yeah, but it, it's a lot of unlearning uh, about our reactiveness to like everything. It's true. But I guess to bring it back to our spaces, um, I don't, have you guys read the architecture of happiness? Emma, I think you have maybe. I did. Um, it's written by a guy. My French accent is ridiculously bad, but something like Alain de Botton, he talks about how our, our built environments can hold us like a psychological mold to a feeling um, or to values. And that's such, that was such a helpful piece of language to put wrap around these feelings I'd had that kind of helped me understand why and how our built environment matters so much. But I think when we're conscious of wanting to live slower or live peacefully we can consciously create a space that basically holds that space for us. Like you walk into certain restaurants or any kind of built environment um, and you feel a certain way, right? And if you know that you want to feel more peaceful, you can make your house help you get there, right? Like it's, it's similar to choosing what music you turn on that's going to influence your mood. Yeah. And a few minutes ago, you mentioned uh, the paleo diet, how that that became um, popular because there was this realization that um, 
you know, we're evolved to eat a certain way and, and, and therefore, um, you know, let's, let's eat that way to get in, in touch with our ancestral selves mm-hmm. and all that. And it, it, you could think of, of creating your space in the same way. It's not like a, I wouldn't call it a diet, but um, applying that same principle to where you live to just make it be gentler on our, Mm -hmm. on our biology. Because like, even to say, even when we say like, oh, we need nature, we need connection with nature, like we are nature. The the separation is, is an illusion. It's not real. And, and our, you know, our walls, our drywall, our bricks, our, our artificial light is a big one. All this kind of stuff is just creating a separation that's, that's not at all real. And that's why, that's why we're, you know, we're just like a, you know, a, I, I, I suddenly got the image is very unpleasant of like, you know, like sticking a pin through a bug or something like we're just like captured, you know, captured in this this identification of being like, oh, there's nature and there's us, but that's, that's really absurd. We're biological beings. We're definitely at the top of the food chain and we're the dominant species on the planet that could be changing rather quickly. (laughs) Or, and you could argue that microbiology is dominant, but um, I guess anyway, that's another rabbit hole. But um, that whole thing about, yeah, we are nature and the, and the separate, the artificial separations that we've created are just making us mm-hmm. sick and mm-hmm. unhappy, which is all kind of the same thing. <clears throat> uh, you talked about walking into a restaurant or a space. This retreat center where we were this weekend is a, is a straw right. bale construction and there's literally clay mud, um, like plaster and plaster. Oh, yeah. So, it's like all natural ingredients, like all the way through the wall. And of course, lots of light and people all weekend were saying, it just, this feels so peaceful. People just said that over and over and over again. And, um, and I would explain you're surrounded by all. Yeah. There's so many interesting levels of what's happening in those spaces. Like uh, clay and plaster walls are negatively charged, negative ions. Um, rather than positive ions, which is a better environment for us. Like negative ions are, are what comes out of waves in the ocean that make you feel better. Like even from an electrical and chemical level, these places are better for yeah. us. They're also hugely better for the environment um, in terms of sustainability. I don't know if you know this stat, but they say 40% of our landfills are construction material. Yeah. 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 And, and the average lifespan of a house now, oh, I forget it. it but it, I want to say it's like 60 something years. Yeah. Yeah. And, then um, and these, these houses built or structures, whatever, commercial scale even, um, built with natural materials and, and clay and mud and these low-tech ancient building methods, it's not uncommon for them to last three, five, six hundred years. Yeah. yeah. And then and when they look at the, the structures that we have left over from like ancient, ancient civilizations that are still not completely standing, but we had a friend showing us some pictures from their trip to Mexico and, you know, 
you know, the foundations of the houses and the little villages. And we're like, oh, is this the Aztecs? Yeah. And they're like, no, 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 this is like whoever was there before the Aztecs. And you're like, what? <laughs> we didn't yeah. even know there were people before that. And also Aztecs. when and also when the, the use for those dwellings are over, it can it can eventually return to the earth. And like unlike so many of yeah. our dwellings that are just just refuse that, you know, the earth can't digest, which is really, you know, it's on such a scale that it's it's really heartbreaking to think about it. Yeah. Um yeah. Or, you know, what we're doing. So before we completely like change the entire construction industry <laughs> and get people to use different building materials, what are some things that we can talk about to people whose houses are already built? They're not going to build another house. You know, maybe they can't build a straw bale house with um, geothermal flooring, but how can you ad- adapt your pre-existing environment to sort of be more in line with all of these things that we're talking about? Yes. How can you adjust your your internal chemistry with what you have? I mean, some of the first things that come to mind are like just whatever you do bring into your home um, using as much natural materials as possible. I I know you guys are already very mindful about um, not using plastics like they're not good for our body, but they're also not good for our brains and they're not good for us chemically. Um, So being mindful of the, the materials you're bringing in and reusing things when you can, but then also just in some really simple ways, using natural color palettes. And I think that's something people typically assign to a pretty narrow range of colors, like white and linen, brown, brown and green, Yeah, Um, which those are, absolutely good for your brain and give you a lot of margin. But I do think there are a lot of amazing natural colors that still count (laughs) like magenta. And I I guess I'm on magenta lately. I still can't get the pokeweed season out of my mind. Oh, Um, isn't it magical? Yes, those colors are amazing and they're still natural. And I would love to do a whole house and, or at least like a whole room that's like an immersive weed palette. So I think I think there's ways to have natural colors that can stimulate you or can relax your brain. Everybody has a different threshold of basically of stimulation that feels right for them. And that's something you can be conscious to construct for yourself. I don't think it's bad to have a high energy space. Um, you probably just also want to have some low energy spaces to, to retreat to. And in our current society, we tend to be super busy, right? Um, Most people are in massive deficit of rest. So we need our spaces to create rest for most people. Um, I think, you know, back in the day when we didn't have cars and internet and all the fast things, it made more sense that people had very, well, just more maximalist living spaces and the austere furniture and the colors and the, yeah. Yeah. And because we have such maximalist lives that we need some minimalist living spaces to balance Mm -hmm. that for most people. So that's Mm -hmm. something you can be conscious of too. I've learned that basically every Every time we see, smell, hear, taste, touch, feel anything, 
every bit of that information requires a kind of squirt of serotonin for your brain to process it. So if you're living in a place where you're seeing a lot, hearing a lot, smelling a lot, feeling a lot, processing a lot, then you're, you're running out of serotonin a lot faster. So that's something you can be conscious of is creating a space to kind of throttle that for yourself. That speaks to the number of objects that surround us, i.e. clutter. (laughs) And again, to speak to the timeline, you know, it's only been since the industrial revolution a couple hundred years ago that, that we, we were inundated with objects. Um, We were hunter gatherers for all the, up until agricultural revolution, 10,000 years ago. So, and, and hunter-gatherers don't have a lot of belongings um, because they have to carry them with them every time they needed to go look for food. Right. So, so when we uh, advanced technologically and were able to make things in in massive quantities, then all and we were settled in in one place then we begin to collect things. And that, that has been a hugely recent development in our brains, again, are not really evolved to handle that. And what you just said about every time you touch something or see something, putting something away, that you are spending mm-hmm. serotonin. Mm-hmm. And that's really, that's really staggering when you think about it. I, what do you think about? How, I think about this personally how much of my time daily is spent just moving things around. Mm-hmm. Those are also decisions too. Talk about like decision fatigue. Like you have to decide like where or what to do, where to put or what yeah, to do. Where or should something. I put this? Should yeah, I keep it? Should I give it away? Well, so-and-so gave it to me. And, uh, mm-hmm. um, so yeah, I mean, maybe, maybe you could talk about clutter or, or lots of objects. I have a or, question. Okay. Um, I think it was when you were talking about colors, you mentioned margin. Yeah. Can you explain a little bit more about margin? (laughs) Um, Yes. So I've thought about it. I guess I thought about it first in terms of um, my days as a editor um, for a publication. And I was a photographer before that. And I was just beginning to understand what makes a good image and why I liked some and not others. And, and it totally depends on the context, right? Like if you're looking at a massive image on a wall in a gallery, then the image can be a lot more detailed because you're surrounded by white space and you're taking time to stand in front of that image and take it all in and you have the, the space to take to take it in but most images we see now are i don't know we might see them for a fraction of a second as we scroll by them on our instagram feed or whatever and in that case we don't have the margin to take it all in you know like the time or band like brain bandwidth to take it in and so i found in that context a very simple image tended to do best And people don't even look at it unless it is a very simple image that your brain can instantly identify, recognize, and take in. That was kind of your only chance most of the time for someone to even pause long enough to look at it. 
And I guess it's kind of similar in everything else that we can really only enjoy something when there's the margin to do that. And yeah, does that make sense? Yeah. So it's like what you have to spend to experience something versus what it's giving you. Is that where the margin is? Like, yeah, I guess that's a fair way to look at it. Yeah. You're like, you're, you're applying a visual margin to an experiential margin. Yeah. Well, it's kind of all the same. Yeah. And it makes me think of, um, like you have a, like, okay, I'm just picturing my kitchen counter. (laughs) It makes me very, very stressed when there's like five objects on it or eight or something. Mm. And I'll spend time again, deciding where to put things, moving things. It's all these decisions until I get to that place where I feel visually rested looking at it. And it's not nothing. No, it's not nothing. Yeah. There needs to be something. Yeah. And it's, but, but there's, there'll be a lot of margin. There will be a lot of space around the objects in it. And I know when I get to that point, ah, you know, there it is. That's better. Yeah. I think all of us have to find that right balance or threshold in our lives. And I think one of the tricky parts is that it keeps changing, right? Like at different points in your life, you have more or less stimuli in other areas of your life. And your room, your physical space just needs to balance that out. If you've got a lot going on in your work life, personal life, then your physical space probably needs to simplify a lot for you to feel better. If you've got a really slow time in your life, then you might be able to have more things on the counter and feel really good about that. Right? Mm-hmm. That's so important to point out that that feeling or that place of equilibrium in your space is an individual thing. Like mm-hmm. you can read these blogs on minimalism and so forth and you look at pictures on Instagram that people, and sometimes, you know, they'll, they'll have their, their kitchen counters will be so stark that it looks like it, they've just moved in and haven't put anything away. And that's kind of jarring too, you know, that's such a um, point for me. It's so personal. Yeah. <laughs> that's great. And then, so we don't have to feel guilty about having like our, our kitchen counter looking like a landing strip or something, you know? No, no, you got to do what yeah. for you that day, you know, um, going back a little bit to what we were talking about earlier and kind of tying it into what we like to talk about at Laney Farmer, which is kind of going beyond sustainability into regeneration actually. So like Mm -hmm. regenerative agriculture and healing the soil, healing our gut, healing our relationships, healing our, you know, everything through regeneration. So healing our brain chemistry. Right. So at this point, I don't think anyone wants to be sustainable because whatever we're doing right now, I don't want to sustain it. You know, I want to heal. When we speak of sustainability is bringing things back to some kind of equilibrium, but the goal really is to move beyond sustainability right. into healing yes. or regenerative space. So how can, yeah. So how do you think, and you don't have to have, you know, an exact answer, but how can spaces be regenerative and how, what kind of, what, what role can space spaces and, and our living spaces and our working and playing spaces, how can that, what role can that play in this process of regeneration? Huge. Um, one of my favorite studies that I've come across in, in this idea is back to that idea of healing spaces, 
have you guys heard of the studies done on people in hospitals after surgery get better faster when they have a window, right? Have you heard this? Yeah. And they get better faster if it's a window that, that shows like trees and nature, right? But then they realize right. people get better even faster if they spend part of their days actually being wheeled outside to some kind of garden, which is awesome. But then these researchers went a step further to try to figure out between all these hospitals with the gardens that people would go out and get better faster in, um, which one of these gardens did the best. And they realized that people got better the fastest in gardens that had a seven to three ratio of green to hardscape. Yeah, it's something to that ratio that seems to be best for oh us. And I just love, they're called healing gardens. And I love the idea of expanding that. I mean, to me, I'd love to see a whole town embrace that ratio, right? Like, why, why do we oh. have just healing gardens? Why don't we have healing towns? Yeah. Wait, can you explain hard to green space? What is Hardscape that? to green space? You want... So they found you want 70% of what you see to be green, living greenery, like living plants. And then 30% to be hardscape, like the wall of a building, the, uh, I don't know. What, a sculpture? Sculpture. A bird bath. Patio. Yeah. Anything human made. Cool. Oh, that's so interesting. Oh my gosh, that's fascinating. That gives me ideas for my garden. Yeah. I hadn't heard that. You can do that. That sounds like sacred geometry that like goes back to Yeah, those are three really magical numbers. I mean two two Yeah, that's fascinating. I I um I wanna touch a minute what you you said about the windows. And I know that artificial light is a big part of this. And you, mm-hmm. and I know you've probably read that, um, you know, during the day um, with the sunlight and daylight, we experience f- uh, the full spectrum of light. <clears throat> and as, and, and as our ancestors lived and all of us up until like a hundred years ago, when artificial light was introduced, <clears throat> the later in the day we get, the more the 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 blue light into the spectrum is reduced and we experience the warmth of like you know, firelight candlelight mm-hmm. but our circadian rhythms adjust to that natural ebb and flow of the full spectrum mm-hmm. and so we're all have a massive deficit of rest and so much research is now showing that this 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 full spectrum experience late in the day is affecting our circadian rhythm so much that we're really not resting adequately. And which is another Mm -hmm. um, reason we might be getting sick, getting sick. Mm -hmm. So now there's all kinds of wacky products, (laughs) blue light blockers, you know, screens, all these things. And um, I've heard some people say that windows filter even even windows and buildings like in like our workspaces, high rises and so forth are filtering the full light. So even if we're indoors with a window, we're not getting the full light spectrum that 
that's literally feeding us and setting our rhythm so that we can rest when the time comes. Have you read anything about that? Do you know anything? Yeah, that's a really tricky thing. It depends on the window and the um, glazing that's on it and how, how thick it is. And that's a tricky problem because to have um, a more sustainable building, you want to have thicker glazed windows to keep the heat inside or climate control right or outside so you want to have a really high r value so people do all these extra layers of um, glass and glazing to try to create the thermal conditions that you want Um, but then that Mm -hmm. can affect the light conditions that you want like nobody thinks in terms of like like, oh, that light coming through there is not full spectrum. I mean, who thinks of that any these days I, I, in the manufacturing? To. People are starting to, but I think there's going to have to be some technical technological advancements. Um, I mean, for me, I think the answer in our building it needs to be a really beautiful combination of low-tech and high-tech answers. I'm not anti-technology. I think there's so much wonderful about living today versus actually all of the ancient um, living in a cave yeah <laughs> like i i like having a lot of the comforts of today but i think we need to um look back to some of the ancient building methods but it is tricky when when weather is such a or like temperature is such a factor and you know you want to get in winter you want to get your light but it's, it was really it's really cold outside yeah. and I realized that nothing replaces like being outside in the full natural light. Right. But and, I'm not sure how much that's not- you you need of that. I know like for vitamin D levels, you only need like 20 minutes of natural sunlight a day. I'm not sure how much you need for yeah. full spectrum light, but I imagine it's not an impossible amount. Yeah. Well, the other thing is like you can just go by how you feel. Mm-hmm. I know that if I'm in a room where light is coming through the window, it feels better. Mm-hmm. So I know, you know, something's right about that. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, there's some degree of, of healing and, and nurturing going on there. You just know, like you walk into a sunny room and, oh, this is lovely. You know, you, right. you wouldn't feel that if it wasn't helping you in some way. Yes. That's or feeding point. you. That's such a good point. I mean, yeah. I think so much of all of this is learning to pay attention to when we feel good. Yeah. And yeah. And maybe maybe because I'm a dork, I I like trying to understand why this makes me feel good. Um so right. that I can recreate it, help other people. Can you talk a little bit about your dream project? I still really want to make a healing town. I think it may need to be it may have to start smaller and I'm okay with that. Like maybe it starts out as more like a resort scale or a village, but hopefully on a lot of land so that I could help just think ahead with the land usage to plan smart for like plans for smart growth. But yeah, I think there just aren't enough spaces, especially in the United States that are the kind of environments that people thrive in. And I think that's, Fortunately, becoming something that more and more people are aiming toward. But I think for so many people, it's like this, I don't know, something that people kind of 
mock the idea of a utopian dream, right? But I can't seem to shake it. And I I don't see it as a way. I don't know. I mean, I think people mock it because it's like this, usually this idea of like a controlling, I don't know what. But um, for me, I think about it more in terms of the other spelling of, of utopia. So utopia, the way we normally talk about it is the letter utopia, which actually means not a place. Um, but there's this other spelling of it. E-utopia means a good place. Oh. And utopia should not exist. It doesn't exist. Um because it's not a real place. But if you make a place that is very grounded in the universal principles we know about biophilia and all these things that we know physiologically, psychologically, aesthetically, environmentally support life and wellness and growth, regeneration, I think we could apply all those principles to building any place anywhere but then I think when you combine that with a very specific time and place in the world is when you get a really magical place that people just want to be there I've started actually I built a website just to try to start organizing my thoughts around it and I don't know maybe become a book it may become something but the idea in my head is about the terroir of utopia. I actually called it the terroir of Camelot, that when you combine these universal principles with the very specific terroir of a time and place and human practices to that area is when you get something really special that lasts for hundreds of years because it's beautiful. I mean, I think there's not enough um, emphasis on beauty in most of our talks around sustainability, but I think beauty is actually one of the most important characteristics for sustainability that we can consider. Like nobody, you know, we have to like fight to save or restore places that nobody cares about usually, but everybody rallies to save places. Historical buildings that are beautiful. Such a good point. And as you're talking about your, your idea of utopia, um, makes me think back over history where we've often gone awry as a as a culture or species or whatever is when we we try to manipulate nature or try to um, gain ascendancy over mm-hmm. nature, make nature work for us instead of uh, working with it or cooperating mm-hmm. with it because we we are nature. Mm-hmm. So the utopia idea, the e utopia might be about uh, about that which is so fundamental just like we are we're we're part of it we're in step with it that that's a the bottom line that when we we try to <clears throat> change that is when we run into trouble you know, historically speaking and mm-hmm. and our spaces we think about the the dwellings that we've created over time where we've gotten off track um, it's just the, the the materials we've decided to use for the either the, the cheaper 
or uh, uh, more accessible. Mm-hmm. So I, I really uh, am intrigued by that idea that the EUtopia as a place, it's a place of balance. It's a place of cooperation. Mm-hmm. It's a place of engagement with nature. Mm-hmm. Because guess what? We're no different from any of it. I want to live there. I want to go to Utopia. Me too. Me too. What's it called? Are you calling it Camelot? <laughs> no. To me, Camelot just kind of holds the idea of the universal principles of beauty and building and, and wellness. Um, and cooperation. Yeah. Yeah. Honor. Yes. Like the round table, right? That's such a, that that's an idea that we all resonate with. I mean, I notice that the round table is usually still full of white men. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and a beautiful woman that busted it all up. Yeah. yeah. That idea of all of us at the table is is what we should be working toward, right? Like and that's the the thing about utopia for me is like if we're not trying to build utopia, what are we doing? So we hope you enjoyed that conversation with Joy. I think the thing that resonates for me is that we pay attention to how we feel in a space. And when we cultivate that awareness of the feeling that you have when you're in a space, then you can do something about it to change it. I don't think it's really a, a first response that when you're feeling agitated or anxious or whatever to say what is it in my surroundings that's making me feel this way and maybe it's it maybe it's not all about your surroundings but I think one big takeaway from this is that it certainly can be and your surroundings can contribute to how you might be feeling in a moment and in a in a day or for even a short period of time or a long period of time or whatever so um I think that's really valuable if you enjoyed this conversation, we hope you'll stay tuned for more. We have so many interesting interviews coming up. And if you have any ideas or questions of things you'd like to talk about, please interview. Oh my gosh. Please email <laughs> the good dirt podcast at gmail.com. Please follow us on Instagram. We are Lady Farmer and find us on Facebook and like our Facebook page and join our Facebook group and do all of the things so that you can make sure that you are tuned in and up to date on what Lady Farmer is doing. Um, Also, please subscribe. That really helps other people find us and rate this episode if you enjoyed it. And we can't wait to hear from you. you like listening to the good dirt i hope you do because you're here listening to it and are you looking for more good dirt in your life and a community of slow living enthusiasts to connect with all while supporting your favorite sustainable living podcast well 
We're so excited to offer the Almanac. It's our private, slow-living community network where we share workshops, activities, articles, essays, recipes, and so much more that align with our community's sustainable, slow, seasonal way of living. As a member, you'll have access to information sharing and discussions on numerous topics of interest through online threads and frequent live virtual gatherings. Members receive access to a virtual community of hundreds of other slow-living enthusiasts, as well as Almanac-exclusive events, workshops, recipes, playlists, online gatherings, and a book club. We offer seasonal activities and ongoing discussions on a variety of topics to guide you on your slow-living journey. Also included is 10% off the Lady Farmer Marketplace year-round, numerous resources and more, and discounted Lady Farmer events, including the Slow Living Retreat. As a Good Dirt listener, we are excited to offer you 20% off your monthly membership and three months free, which is basically an entire season, if you sign up for the year. So go ahead and go to ladyfarmer.com slash community to sign up with this special offer just for Good Dirt listeners. Yay! That's ladyfarmer.com slash community to sign up for 20% off a monthly membership of the Almanac for three months free if you sign up for an entire year. That's ladyfarmer.com slash community.